Thank you for tuning in to the Sun Also Rises radio show and podcast here on KPCG-FM. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and on the show today we discuss the account of a fascinating Polish World War II heroine whose story may have never been brought into the public eye had it not been for some American high school students long after the war ended who took an assignment that they were given very seriously. For this, we go to our Adelaide-based correspondent, Marie Tallis. In rural Kansas, 1999, three students at Uniontown High School were being encouraged by their social studies teacher to enter the National History Day program. Mr. Conrad liked to encourage his students to push their boundaries. Their classroom motto was, he who changes one person changes the world entire. The National History Day, or NHD, organization is a non-profit educational program that was designed to engage the minds of over half a million middle and high school students. The goal is to encourage them to conduct their own original research on historical topics of interest. Each year there is a theme. 2018's, for example, was conflict and compromise. Students can produce exhibits or documentaries, performances, websites, or even papers detailing their research into a topic of their choice. The first stage of the National History Day is actually presenting the projects in the classroom, like you would do with any sort of uh, school project. Uh, and then you might present it at your school or at the districts around the world. After that, these entries are submitted and the best quality projects are invited to the state or affiliate level contests. The top two entries in every category at the state and affiliate level are then invited to the national contest. The NHD is aimed at teaching critical thinking, writing and research skills to all those who participate. It actually now sees nearly 3,000 students with their families and teachers gather each year at the University of Maryland in College Park for the final contest. It's a week-long event. And it's not just limited to the United States. These groups actually come from all 50 of the United States, Washington, D.C., Guam, American Samoa, Puerto Rico, and international schools in China, Korea, and South Asia. But back to 1999. Mr. Conrad is encouraging his 14-year-old ninth graders, Megan Stewart and Elizabeth Cambers, to enter the NHD. These two girls decide to join with an 11th grader, the 16-year-old Sabrina Coons, and they begin to hunt for their topic. The girls became intrigued by the March 1994 issue of US News and World Report. One sentence jumped out at them. It went something along the lines of, Irina Sandler saved many children and adults from the Warsaw Ghetto in 1942. Over the next year, the girls began their search and what a story they ended up discovering. Irina Sandler was a remarkable woman and her actions changed the course of more than 2,000 people's lives. Irina Sendler was born in February 1910 in a little town called Otwok. I'm not very good at pronouncing Polish, so I might mess some of these names up, but the town was located just outside of Warsaw in Poland. Warsaw became the capital city of Poland after World War I. It's situated alongside both banks of the Vistula River. At the moment, the city is home to about 1.7 million people, but at the time of Arena's childhood, there was closer to 1.3 million. Warsaw was the major cultural centre of Jewish life in Poland. It was the largest community in both Poland and the whole of Europe, and the second largest in the world behind New York City. Before World War II, nearly 30% of the city's total population was Jewish. Arena's father was Dr. Stanislaw, the town physician. 
Irina would later write that she was raised in a spirit that taught that religion, nationality, race did not matter. What mattered was the person. Although she was Catholic, as a young girl, she played with the Jewish children and could even understand a bit of Yiddish. When typhus broke out in their town, many other physicians refused to treat in fear of contracting the disease themselves. Dr. Stanislaw continued to see patients, many of whom were Jews. And when Irina was seven, he eventually contracted typhus himself and died. The Jewish community never forgot his willingness to help them, though, and offered Irina's mother, Yanina, help paying for Irina's education. Irina attended Warsaw University, where she studied Polish literature, but she actually ended up being suspended for three years. Her great-grandfather had led a revolt against the Tsars, and maybe she had actually inherited a little bit of that spirit because she was suspended for protesting against the ghetto bench system. In Europe, there was growing anti-Semitism, and this had led to a ghetto bench system being implemented in Polish universities. It was a seating arrangement where Jewish students had to sit on a particular side or in a particular area of the classroom. Irina crossed out the stamp on her grade card that allowed her to sit on the Aryan side in protest, and she got suspended. After her suspension, she did end up graduating, and she went on to work in the Warsaw Social Welfare Department. She became senior administrator, where she oversaw the operations of canteens that provided meals, financial aid, and other services for the poor, orphaned, and destitute. She was only 29 years old when the war broke out. Germany invaded on September 1st, 1939, blanketing Warsaw in heavy air attacks and artillery bombardments. 28 days later, Warsaw surrendered and the Germans occupied the city. The Social Welfare Department had already been instrumental in offering food and shelter to those in need before the German occupation, but afterwards, Irina knew she was one of the few who could take advantage of her job to continue supporting the Jewish families. For the Jews, life in Warsaw quickly became harsh. By the 23rd of November, German civilian occupation authorities had demanded that the Jews start wearing white armbands with a blue Star of David as a form of identification. Their schools were closed, Jewish men were forced into becoming labourers, and any pre-war Jewish organisations were dissolved. The most basic aspect of Verena's job in the social welfare department was to provide advice for people. So she and her friends began to forge paperwork, detailing false interviews with fictitious surnames. Under these false names, they could organise money, food and clothing for Jews. Irina also began using the canteens to provide clothing, medicine and money for the Jews under these fictitious names. The department also listed Jewish families as being infected with highly infectious diseases in order to prevent their homes from being inspected. A year later, in October 1940, the Warsaw Ghetto was erected. Any Jewish residents were forced into an area about the size of New York Central Park, or about 1.3 square miles. The Jews were now isolated and closed off from the city. A wall over 10 feet high was erected around the ghetto and topped with barbed wire. Jews from nearby towns were compelled to move into the ghetto as well. So there were more than 400,000 Jews crammed into the area and that's an average of about 7.2 people per room. The wall was closely guarded and only select individuals were allowed in or out. And amazingly, Irina Sendler was one of them. 
Irina had decided to become a worker for the Contagious Disease Department, or the Epidemic Control Department. She, along with several others, many of them women, serving in the social welfare department with her, secured paperwork from the director of the municipal sanitary unit. These papers allowed them to enter the ghetto to inspect the sanitary conditions. At least, that's what the Germans thought she was doing. Conditions in the ghetto were atrocious. The food allotments from the German civilian authorities barely sustained life, and by 1941, the average Jewish resident of the ghetto was surviving on 1,125 calories a day. When you consider that the average man needs around 2,500 calories to just sustain his weight, people were starving to death. And with cramped quarters and lack of resources, along came disease. Between 1940 and 1942, 83,000 Jews had died of starvation and disease. Irina would stay inside the ghetto for as long as she could. She and her friends made contact with the underground Jewish organisations so they could coordinate with them. And they did all they could to normalise ghetto life. They would bring food, medicine and clothing in, as well as try to organise classes for children, readings, concerts, holidays and any other underground resistance activities. She and her helpers were also working on producing false documentation for the Jewish families. But not even these efforts could really shake the horrible reality that 5,000 people were dying a month in the ghetto. And worse was yet to come. In 1942, it was decided that Warsaw would be liquidated. 280,000 Jews were sent to Treblinka, a death camp only an hour away from Warsaw. It was at this point that a resistance called the Council for Aid to the Jews, or Zagoda, was established. Irina joined as one of its first and main recruits. Zagoda became a crucial element in the rescue of those who would survive the liquidation. It helped to organise hiding places and pay for the upkeep and medical care of those it smuggled out. Irina became the director of the efforts to rescue children. Writing about these efforts, Deborah Dwork, a professor of Holocaust history at Clark University in Massachusetts, later said that she was the inspiration and the prime mover for the whole network that saved 2,500 Jewish children. Irina was given the underground name of Yolanta. She had already established contacts with the orphanages and institutes for abandoned children through her social work, and these became absolutely vital in relocating Jewish children. She worked closely with convents and religious institutions run by nuns in nearby towns to organise the children to be hid there. To save one child, a team of about 12 people was needed, all working in absolute secrecy. Drivers were needed for vehicles, priests had to issue false baptism certificates, bureaucrats had to issue ration cards, but most importantly, a family had to agree to care for them. A member of the Polish resistance by the name of Władysław Bartoszowski later stated, no work, not printing underground papers, transporting weapons, planning sabotage against the Germans, none of it was as dangerous as hiding a Jew. You have a ticking time bomb in your home. If they find out, they will kill you, your family and the person you're hiding. Instant execution. Irina also faced the challenge of appealing to the Jewish parents to let them smuggle their children out. These traumatic conversations haunted her for the rest of her life. She stated that those scenes over whether to give a child away were heartrending. Sometimes they wouldn't give me the child. Their first question was, 
What guarantee is there that the child will live? I said, none. I don't even know if I will get out of the ghetto today. But Irina and her friends were determined to use whatever means they could to get the children out. They had several different options. There were underground corridors that had entrances on the ghetto side. The Polish police had to be bribed so they could allow the kids to go through them. The Jewish children would have to be dressed in their best so that they could cross over without the Star of David. The Jewish Foundation describes how there was a cemetery on the ghetto's boundaries. Children were placed in coffins, sedated so they wouldn't cry or having their mouths taped. A church was also on the boundary. Children would enter one side a Jew and then on the other a Catholic with new papers saying so. A child could be smuggled out using an ambulance, hiding them under the stretcher. Or if the child was actually very sick, legally removed in one. They would bring dogs with them if they went into the ghetto sometimes to bark just in case a child made noises. The women also used potato sacks, trunks, trolleys, anything to conceal children as they went in and out. One worker carried a baby out in a toolbox. It was actually remarkable just how many people were willing to take the children once they were smuggled out. Irina recalled that no one ever refused to take a child from me. There are still close calls. One of her colleagues, Magda Rusinek, described one harrowing escape with a small child. The street was blocked, so I ran through gates I knew were still open with him under my arm, and we just managed to get to the apartment when they blocked it. So it was seconds, absolute seconds. After the children were smuggled out, they then had to adapt to their new, often Catholic, environment. The women would teach the children little prayers that every child knows in Polish. They would have to teach them how to behave in a Christian church. Poit Zettinger was one of those children who was smuggled out. He remembers how they treated me like their own child. The sisters would warn him when the Gestapo came to the convent. They would tell me when I should hide, so I'd run up into the attic. I'd hide in the cupboard there. Irina and her network made sure that no matter where the child was hidden, their protectors knew that they would one day be returning them to their Jewish relatives. They kept records of their new identities, as well as their old ones, and hid them in glass bottles buried under an apple tree in the neighbor's backyard. And there were more than 2,500 names written on those pieces of cigarette paper. But on the 20th of October, 1943, Irina Sendler was arrested. She later recalled how the Gestapo arrived at her door. It was my sick mother who woke up first. When I opened my eyes, the Gestapo were already going crazy outside the door. In accordance with my predetermined plan, I rushed to the window in order to throw out the children's wad of cards. Unfortunately, two Gestapo officers were standing under my window. In this state of affairs, my plan worked out over four years collapsed. The Gestapo officers had already almost pushed in the door, but I still had the presence of mind to throw the whole wad of cards into Grabowska, one of her fellow colleagues who lived next door, into her hand saying, this is a list of our children, hide it somewhere, save it, it cannot get into the hands of the Gestapo. I then opened the door. Eleven of them barged in together with our caretaker. The Gestapo tore boards up from the floors and ripped tiles away from the stove. They were frantic. They rushed over to my divan bed, unstitched pillows and sent feathers flying. Due to the lack of money, I didn't have a normal bed during the war, only a kind of grid on two wooden poles. And this grid was apparently poorly strengthened, and as I ransacked this bed and began unstitching mattresses and pillows, it collapsed. 
This actually turned out to be quite a fortunate turn of events because under the bed was a bag containing underground documents. That piece of furniture crushed the bag so that the Germans themselves had hidden what would have been the most dangerous to Irina. The Gestapo took Irina to Pauiak prison. She was questioned and tortured, her legs and feet fractured. She was informed that she would be executed, shot. Resigned to her fate, she had no idea that Zagoda had been working hard to free her. Finally, her colleagues succeeded in bribing the German executioner and the day before she was to be shot, she was released. Her execution was still loudly proclaimed and posters were put up declaring her death. She would have to live the rest of the war in hiding, just like the children she had saved. But she still supported the resistance efforts wherever she could. And when the war was finally over, Irina knew she still had work to do. Irina returned to Warsaw and dug up the bottles and then began to track down the children and try to find a living parent or relative. Nearly all the parents of the children she had smuggled out perished at Treblinka. Her story and the story of all those who helped her though might have remained fairly unknown if not for the efforts of those three girls in Kansas. Those students, as they began to research, realised that Irina was still alive and began to write to her. They had decided to turn their National History Day project into a short play called Life in a Jar, based on her life, and the play became a surprising success in the United States. They began a foundation known as the Irina Sendler Project. In 2003, Poland awarded her with the Order of the White Eagle. In response to the award, Irina wrote a letter to the Polish Senate. In it, she wrote, Every child saved with my help and the help of all the wonderful secret messengers who today are no longer living is the justification of my existence on this earth and not a title to glory. As her story started to spread, Irina began to hear from the children that had been rescued from the ghetto. Most had only known her by her code name, Yolanta, but her picture was in the papers. One man, a painter, telephoned and said, I remember your face. It was you who took me out of the ghetto. He was one of many Coles, such as Elisbeta Fukowska, who had only been a baby in 1942. She said that Mrs. Sendler had saved not only us, but also our children and grandchildren and the generations to come. She didn't just change those children's lives, she changed the lives of the students and the teacher who had studied her. Mr. Conrad still works with the students who run the foundation in Irina's name. And he said that Irina Sendler has changed my life and the lives of my students. She continues to make a huge difference in the world. Irina eventually died in 2008, having been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize and recognized as a national hero in Poland. But Irina was just a young woman who was willing to risk her life and her families to help others in need. Even in the worst conditions imaginable and with the highest risks, she was looking for what she could do to help. It was a team effort. She and her colleagues helped thousands of young Jewish children survive and hold on to their identity, their Jewish history. And in a beautiful way, her own life now has become a very special aspect of Polish history. Hearing accounts like this very inspiring one of Irina Sindler gives each of us an opportunity to consider what we would have done if we'd been living in Poland during World War II. 
or in some other European country where the Holocaust was happening. We may be quick to say, you know, if I'd been there, I would have done my part to protect and to help the Jews like Irina did, like Oscar Schindler did, like Chiyune Sugihara and other heroes did. We might be quick to say, never in a million years would I have participated in that barbaric attempted genocide. But German Chancellor Adolf Hitler didn't murder six million Jews by himself. And he didn't even do it with just his Nazi armed forces. According to Hedy Engelberg's book, The Trains of the Holocaust, there were more than 250,000 people involved just in the operation of Europe's train networks during the war. There were also legions of office workers drawing up and managing the logistics for shipping people around. There were thousands of city police officers and countries throughout Europe guarding the streets, making sure Jews and other persecuted minorities stayed in the ghettos until they could be put on those trains. No one questions the leading role that Hitler and other leaders of the Nazi regime played, but the sobering fact is that there were hundreds of thousands of what you would call ordinary people, not just in Germany, but in numerous other European countries, who went about their lives feeling civilized while they made the Holocaust possible. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum writes about this, saying, quote, An expanding body of research documents the role that ordinary people in Nazi Germany and Europe played in the Holocaust. People had choices. Many individuals actively participated in the stigmatization, isolation, impoverishment, and violence culminating in the mass murder of six million European Jews. Many others supported the participants from the sidelines, tolerated their actions, or benefited from them. Still others disapproved of what they witnessed silently. Holocaust historian Christopher Browning said the widespread collaboration that, you know, made the Holocaust possible was not a historic anomaly, and that this kind of thing has happened numerous times throughout history, though generally on a smaller scale. He wrote, quote, There are many singular aspects about the Holocaust, but the nature of killers does not seem to be one of them. Any government that has wanted to commit genocide has not failed from a shortage of executioners. Governments have the power to create an institutional, organizational, situational framework that will harness people to kill. They prey on people's conformity, their deference, and their desire to be held in the esteem of their comrades. Irina Sendler was a Catholic, and she was from a fairly affluent family, and she faced the same pressure that hundreds of thousands of other people caved into during World War II. Pressure that made them participate to varying degrees in the Holocaust. But she resisted that pressure and saved 2,500 people. She and those who assisted her refused to become part of those hundreds of thousands who, who played a role in mass murder. Even knowing what was at risk, knowing they could be tortured and killed, they still wouldn't take part. Irina was later tortured for refusing to cave into that pressure. But against all of that pressure, and knowing full well what the risks were, she obeyed her principles and her God. And in so doing, 
Irina Sindler gave an example to those who worship the true God. Even when the entire civilization is demanding that we comply, as the Apostle Peter said in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Mr. Gerald Fleury is the presenter of the Key of David program here on KPCG, and he's also a prolific author. And one of his very powerful and practical books called How to Be an Overcomer is a detailed manual about essentially how to obey God rather than men, how to resist societal and other kinds of pressure, and as the title says, how to be an overcomer. If you go to thetrumpet.com and click on the literature tab, you can order an entirely free copy of this potentially life-changing book, and we will also include a link to it in our show notes on SoundCloud. Well, that brings us to the end of The Sun Also Rises. Many thanks to Marie Tallis for her work on this. And we'll leave you with a quote from Irina Sendler herself. She said, I was brought up to believe that a person must be rescued when drowning, regardless of religion and nationality. Mm -hmm.